Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyden Gray Center, the study of the administrative state. I'm the center's director, Adam White. On November 15th, 2019, the center hosted a conference titled Technology, Innovation, and Regulation. Needless to say, that's a pretty broad theme, and it provided for a wide array of interesting discussions of some of the ways in which regulation affects technological innovation and some of the ways in which technological innovation affects regulation. As always, the panel discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website. The videos of the discussions are also on our website. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's third panel titled Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Regulation. In this discussion, Professor David Freeman Engstrom of Stanford's Law School presented a paper that he's co-written with his colleague, Daniel Ho. The paper is titled Algorithmic Accountability in the Administrative State. It's a really fascinating paper, and it's an outgrowth of the ongoing work that Professors Engstrom and Ho have been doing on algorithmic governance. I highly recommend that you take a look at this paper and at their broader work. In the panel discussion, they were joined by Professor Catherine Sharkey of New York University, and by Melissa Netram, the Chief Innovation Officer and Director of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's program, Lab CFTC. I had the pleasure of moderating this discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. Can we get started? All right. If folks will take their seats and settle in, we'll get started. The panel's first speaker is Professor Engstrom. He is a professor of law at Stanford Law School, teaching and writing on administrative law and other subjects, and he also serves as Stanford Law's Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives leading the law school's initiative, charting the school's future work around digital technology. That's right. Thanks. All right, so thanks, Adam, for the invite. Uh, glad to be here, glad to tell you all about this research. Um, I'll start by noting that this work is uh, very much um, joint work. Um, it includes my Stanford colleague, Dan Ho, my Stanford colleague, Tino Cuellar, and also this panel's very own, uh, Kathy Sharkey. So everything I say today reflects the uh, the, the terrific collaboration that we've been doing over the past uh, year plus now. Um, our interest in this project, and, and I'll start broadly, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, I guess I'll, I'll start with the project overview, but um, our interest in this project came from uh, the thought that there's uh, a lot of interesting debate about the use of uh, artificial intelligence, especially machine learning tools. Um, but a lot of that debate has been limited to the state and local level, and in particular, the criminal justice context. So think predictive policing or the use of machine learning tools for purposes of pre- and post-trial bail and parole and, and, and even some sentencing determinations. And we wanted to know how else AI was being used by government. Uh, and in particular, we are interested in civil regulatory uses. So... We uh, started uh, a major project to try to understand better how various machine learning tools are being used by federal agencies. We assembled a cast of about, I think we're now at about 30 people. It includes a mess of lawyers. It also includes 10 computer science PhDs. And this team of researchers has spanned out across the entire federal administrative state and tried to understand better how federal agencies are using some of these tools. Um, the project is includes what we call a canvas of, the, of, of all agencies. We've tried to surface every possible application, every possible use case we can. And we've also done quite a few rich case studies of particular uses of machine learning by federal agencies. 
So let me just start with a quick empirical result from that canvassing exercise. Here it is. It's an effort to, to roll up the 177 use cases, the 177 uses of machine learning by federal agencies. And we've bucketed them by governance task. Now you can see that some of the uses of AI by federal agencies are pedestrian, but still plenty important. So lots of use of machine learning to aid in the procurement process or to manage agency employees. Lots of regulatory monitoring and analysis. But many of the other uses are really quite consequential and they show AI moving closer to the center of the coercive and the redistributive power of the state. Great example there is use of machine learning in connection with adjudication. So think uh, disability benefits determinations or patents and trademarks. Also enforcement. Let me try to make this concrete. I'll give you two examples from those latter two categories. I'll give you an example of use of machine learning uh, in the adjudication context and also then in the enforcement context. So we'll start with adjudication. And there are a number of mass adjudicatory agencies within the Federal Minister of State. This includes the Social Security Administration, the Board of Veterans Appeals, the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. And these mass adjudicatory agencies face some daunting challenges. First off, there are really significant interjudge disparities in decision-making, even though cases are randomly assigned to administrative judges. So this is something maybe you've seen before, but this is a plot of decisions by, by administrative judges at the SSA. Each dot is a judge, x-axis is a, an award rate. And what it shows is that there are some AJs at the SSA that award benefits roughly 5% of the time, and some who award benefits 95% of the time. And what this means is that these decisions are clearly being driven by something other than the merits of those determinations. Second challenge facing agencies uh, that have to do these mass adjudications, backlogs. That's a file room from the Board of Veterans Appeals. Uh, and at least at the time this photo was taken a couple years ago, it took an average of seven years to resolve a veteran's appeal. The SSA has started to think about how machine learning tools can be used to mitigate some of these concerns. So for instance, SSA has developed a tool, the machine learning algorithm, that clusters similar cases. The idea is that administrative judges can therefore group them together and more efficiently and more equitably work through those cases. So that's one idea of a tool. It was developed by Gerald Ray, by the way, who's a former member of the Appeals Council, quite an entrepreneur within the agency to convince the SSA and to nudge it into using these types of tools. That's one type of tool. Um, much more interesting tool, I think, is something called the Insight System. This is a system that catches errors in draft decisions. So it actually leverages a, a manually developed decision tree that captures 2,000 possible 
um, outcomes within the five step decision process for deciding whether disability benefits should issue. They can actually take a draft AJ decision and find any of 30 types of errors in that decision. These tools raise all sorts of really interesting technical and capacity building challenges. I would love to talk about those during Q&A. The key point I want to make now is that the SSA is right on the frontier of this sort, sort of use of machine learning. And it's not hard to envision the use of machine learning tools that get closer and closer to something like substantive automation of adjudicatory decisions. Let me give you a concrete example on the enforcement side of things. First off, what do these enforcement tools do? They solve a problem for these big mass sorry, these big mass enforcement agencies. These agencies have infinite regulatory mandates and potentially infinite regulatory targets, and yet they have finite resources. And so what these tools do is they allow the agency to predict misconduct by monitoring the regulatory landscape and then shrink the haystack of potential violators and therefore more efficiently target the agency's scarce enforcement resources. What's a really concrete version of this? Well, the SEC has a pair of tools that combat insider trading by looking for anomalies in a sea of corporate filings that the SEC receives, uses a natural language processing tool. This is the branch of machine learning that does text analytics, finds anomalies in those filings. The agency can then request stock trading information relating to those anomalies. And then a separate machine learning tool figures out who's doing better than they should be in, this, in that trading area. So raising a suspicion of insider trading. Another tool, and this is the one depicted here, uses another one of these NLP tools, a natural language processing tool, to parse the narrative disclosures of investment advisors to figure out who the bad apples might be, who might be more likely to violate the federal securities laws. And the tool, it's another machine learning tool, can compare the disclosures of the current set of investment advisors to past investment advisors, the disclosures of the past investment advisors who were ultimately sent to the enforcement arm of the agency. There are lots of other examples. This slide just shows you that the IRS is using a similar set of machine learning tools for its enforcement purposes around tax fraud. CMS also using a set of tools around healthcare fraud and a bunch of other agencies. Final point on this, which is the sky's the limit. That's my colleague Dan Ho from Stanford. He's one of the principals on this study. He has a paper out in Nature uh, Sustainability um, that uses a computer vision model. This is the branch of machine learning that allows computers to see something in the world, to analyze satellite imagery, and to identify concentrated animal feeding operations that might be violating the Clean Water Act. That hopefully gives you a really concrete sense of how some of these tools are starting to come into government and are helping to resolve governance challenges in adjudication and also in enforcement. Okay. We started out at a very high level, we went down to the ground level, we're now up at the mid level. So the question is how do we regulate this stuff? How do we ensure there's at least some measure of accountability? when government uses these 
tool. And I can start by noting that this whole project and this phenomenon of government agencies using these machine learning tools triggers a profound collision. On one side is administrative law's commitment to transparency, accountability, and reason giving. This idea that when government takes action that affects rights, it has to explain why. On the other side is the fact that these tools that government agencies are increasingly taking up are not by their structure fully explainable. That is to say the engineers who code them can't always explain how the machine got to a particular result. Hopefully you see the basic challenge between the laws, normative commitments, and the actual technology. The challenge then is how to nonetheless achieve some sensible level of accountability. And I see three types of challenges here. One is that there are different transparency imperatives across different tools. And you can see that in the two examples that I put before you. On the adjudication side, maybe we would demand a decision level accounting of the particular decision's provenance. Maybe a data subject, a beneficiary would be entitled to the inputs that went into the decision about her. Maybe even a weighting of those inputs. How influential were particular inputs in producing the result of no disability benefits? But on the enforcement side, the transparency imperatives are very different because disclosure of the guts of the tool kills it because it permits evasion and gaming by the regulated community. So in short, there are lots of different ways we can conceptualize transparency from full open sourcing of a tool to a very thin system level accounting of maybe the basic strokes of the tool. And different tools, I think, are gonna require different levels of transparency if they're going to be, uh, if they're, if they're gonna be useful. All right, second challenge is the structure of current administrative law. I'll just give you one example. For any of the administrative lawyers in the room, you probably know that administrative law, at least in its current guise, hives off most enforcement decision-making from judicial review. It's the Heckler v. Cheney line of cases. And the Supreme Court did that for some pretty decent reasons. I think we all worry about generalist judges second-guessing agency decision-making, especially when those decisions are based around budgetary allocations. We also worry that when an agency is rummaging around in the haystack and trying to figure out who to enforce against, we worry that there's no real focal point for judicial review. There's nothing to really focus on in that rummaging process. What's interesting to me is that the introduction of algorithmic enforcement tools could actually make this problem a lot worse, but it could make it a lot better. Could make it a lot worse because of the opacity of these tools. It could be even harder for a reviewing court to figure out what an agency is doing. But it's also possible that these tools encode legal principles and agency priorities in a way that make enforcement decision-making a lot more tractable. And so it's possible that that Heckler v. Cheney light of cases, again, for the administrative lawyers in the room, um, uh, might not be found to apply in this context. It's also possible that these algorithms would be declared legislative rules under the Administrative Procedure Act and therefore would have to go through the full notice and comment process. That 
that's interesting. And we could say, yes, maybe that brings some accountability. But then we go back to this problem that disclosure of the full details of a tool probably kills its usefulness. Okay, so if we're gonna design good accountability measures, we have to take account of the different transparency imperatives. We have to take account of the current structure of administrative law. Final quick point on this, we also have to think about achieving something we could call actionable transparency. Data subjects, those, those disability <sighs> beneficiaries, or benefit, yeah, the disability benefit recipients, they may not have enough expertise to know what to do with an accounting of the inputs that went into their decision. Similarly, we worry that generalist judges, if they are given details about an algorithmic system, won't know what to do with it. And so again, part of the challenge is I think we need new ways of thinking about how to bring some accountability to this area. Last point on this, which is in some of our work in the report that we're about to submit to ACUS, but also in some separate writing we're doing, we're playing with this idea of a benchmarking solution. So we're thinking outside the box and thinking about how could we add to administrative law to try to achieve something like meaningful accountability in this area. And this is what we've come up with. It's called benchmarking. The basic mechanism is that agencies that want to adopt one of these algorithmic governance tools would have to reserve a random test sample and work up cases in the old school analog fashion. So what does that mean concretely? Well, in the SSA context, if it wants to engage in anything that looks like automated decision-making regarding disability benefits, it would have to create a holdout set of cases and decide those without any algorithmic enhancement. The SEC wants to use an algorithmic enforcement tool. It, will have, it would be required to fully investigate a holdout set of cases without the aid of the risk scores that the tool provides to those line-level enforcers. We think this would provide some pretty good benefits. It would provide a, a nice concrete comparison of analog and algorithmic decisions to try to smoke out concerns about bias or arbitrariness in decision-making. It also provides a nice check on procurement-provided tools. So when an agency chooses not to make a tool itself, but rather to buy it through the procurement process. And then finally, this benchmarking approach provides a, a source of new training data, which can help to update these models, which is something I'm glad to talk about during Q&A, but it's, a, it's definitely a concern we have when administrative agencies are using algorithmic tools in the enforcement domain. I'll leave off there, but hopefully I've primed the conversation with some, uh, with some good ideas, and so thanks to everyone for, uh, for listening to me. Well, thank you very much. Uh, our second speaker is Melissa Netram. She is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's Chief Innovation Officer, where she directs the Lab CFTC program, which the CFTC describes as, quote, the focal point for the CFTC's efforts to promote responsible financial technology innovation and fair competition for the benefit of the American public. CFTC says that Lab CFTC is the hub for the agency's engagement with the fintech innovation community. Before joining the CFTC, uh, Ms. Netram served in the Treasury Department and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and in the private sector, worked with Intuit and Standard & Poor's. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm coming at this from a different angle, obviously. Um, you know, very uh, interesting what David had to say about how agencies are using AI and the use of that with uh, the Administrative Procedures Act. 
I'm here to talk about how agencies are looking at developing right offices of innovation so that we can look at to tools like AI and machine learning to, to help not only our processes, but then to help market participants uh, as they're uh, using these tools in, in our typical regulatory box. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Lab CFTC is, as Adam, Adam mentioned, has been around for about two and a half years now. Um, really focused on being that front door for innovators uh, and and internally in in the commission to talk through what are the new tools, what are the innovations that are out there, what are the trends that we're seeing, and and how does that fit into the typical regulatory box structure um, that the CFTC has uh, for for our market participants. Um, the, the mission of the lab really is to promote responsible innovation. So what that means is, right, enabling innovation to thrive um, in a way that, um, that can, uh, people can continue to grow and think of new creative ways to do things, while at the same time uh, adhering to things that don't affect market risk, uh, market integrity, consumer protection, things like that. Um, we have a number of different initiatives that we do in order to ensure innovation, and I'm just going to talk about them at a high level and then get into AI specifically and how we're looking at AI. Um, one of them is uh, we really work to help, as I mentioned, to facilitate the dialogue um, between innovators and how innovation is being used in the marketplace. Over the past two and a half years, We've had over 350 entities come in to talk to us about what they're doing with virtual currencies, blockchain, AI, machine learning, and how that applies to the current marketplace, whether it's a, technological, a technology company that uh, isn't typically regulated by the CFTC or whether it's uh, you know, the usual players uh, using new technology. Uh, part of those conversations, again, is not just to um, to, to play this game of uh, gotcha. Uh, I, I heard earlier the lunch speaker mentioned something about the coziness of uh, uh, government regulators with the industry. And that's, that's not the goal of these types of conversations. These types of conversations are really to do a, a two-way education where uh, it's not just you as an innovator educating us on what you're seeing and doing in the marketplace, but also us helping to educate you as you're looking at how does this innovation fit. Um, the other piece is, you know, there's a, in speaking of education, there's an education effort, right? Um, we have just finished two weeks ago, we had our second annual FinTech Forward Conference um, that the CFTC held. We did a wide range of topics, a lot of them focused on artificial intelligence in the 21st, 21st century um, and, and looking at how, how that applies to the current marketplace. What are the challenges from the outside of, of using AI in the financial services regulatory space, but also what are the challenges of regulators? We had a panel of international regulators talk about how they're looking at AI and, and other innovation tools and how that fits. And then um, in, on the speaking of international regulators, right, collaborating with global regulators, we just uh, signed on to the Global Financial Innovation Network uh, mm -hmm. two weeks ago, where, um, where since its launch, it's about 50 financial regulators um, around the globe, including a number of them here in the U.S., two states as well. And this is very important, right, because 
right now, technology, AI, machine learning, but also just basic technology is not something that you can confine to the state. Um, it's, uh, there's, there aren't any borders. And so as international regulators and global regulators, even US regulators are looking at how, um, how this new technology applies to the regulation in, in front of them, uh, we have to be staying coordinated and, and on top of it. Now, in terms of AI, uh, there are two different initiatives that we're looking at here at the CFTC, um, you know, to, to focus on. One of them is along the lines of what David talked about, right? Um, how, how do we, how should we, or do we uh, use AI um, in terms of our own internal processes? Um, last year, we released, uh, actually in the spring, we released a, a request for information, an RFI, to see um, if there were any topics that the industry felt we should have for our first innovation competition. Um, we anticipate that that'll be launched later this year, early next year. And a, the focus will be on AI and how we can use AI for some of our internal processes. Um, this, again, gets us to looking at how, how do these innovations help Oh, and I, I know David posed a number of questions that I'm sure Kathy will um, talk about as well uh, in relation to government agencies. But, um, you know, there are a number of benefits related to the use of these technologies when it comes to, um, uh, especially with AI. And the second is, um, you know, in, along the same lines of education, we've released a number of different, we're calling them primers, right, that address uh, significant emerging fintech developments. One of them that we recently released was an AI primer on what is AI. Um, this is so critical, right? Because while all of us in this room uh, may have an idea of what AI is, it's people outside the room that, that don't, um, that aren't using it every day or don't realize they're using it, right? So these primers are meant to not only educate uh, folks in the marketplace in terms of what, what is AI, how is the agency looking at AI, but they're also meant to help in terms of educating internally. We do, we will be doing a number of lunch and learns, right, where we help in educating staff and career staff on the latest and newest technologies. This is important for a number of reasons, um, one of which is to identify are these tools something we should be using um, to help with our processes given the, the limited resources as David mentioned. The second is um, as we're regulating technology companies or financial services companies or whomever in this marketplace, um, how, are, how are we to regulate them if we don't understand the underlying technology that they're using uh, for this? And so, um, so that's, that's the AI. Just really quick, um, I know I only have a couple more minutes on, on my time left and I'll be open to questions, but um, you know, David mentioned a number of different benefits of, of AI, right? Increased efficiency, productivity, accuracy. Um, but as he mentioned, right, there's, there is definitely a risk side of it um, and uh, ability to counter hu human biases is both the benefit and a risk. And, um, you know, AI is something that while we, at the end of the day, does help with productivity, um, that as, as David highlighted, right, there are some things that you're going to have to account for to make sure that the machines don't continue to, to, to move forward in a, in a way that creates this bias. Um, 
I think that there are also some areas that obviously we're looking at at the at the commission. One of which is how does it enhance the marketplace? How do, does it pose any risk? And um, while while it can be there to to create those efficient processes, as we mentioned, right? What's the what's the mechanism to help in terms of making that check um, to to ensure that the machine is moving the way it needs to? AI only gets better because it continues to evolve uh, based on that internal, um, that person or individual going in to say, actually, you were wrong with that assessment, right? And, and, and what's that check? Um, and so while I, I can't comment specifically on what the commission is doing in terms of our AI or, or even some of the pieces that David referred to, right, having these types of innovation offices around the globe, actually, um, with the regulators to be that front door is is critical so that this type of discussion can continue to happen, not only with market participants, but also internally into the agency. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. And our last speaker is Professor Catherine Sharkey. She is New York University's Crystal Eastman Professor of Law, where she's a leading expert on administrative law, torts, and products liability, member of the American Law Institute, and the Administrative Conference of the United States. And as I mentioned earlier, she's been a principal advisor for ACUS on, on the project on artificial intelligence in the regulatory state. And this and other projects, she's played a leading role in advancing the study of technology and administration. Thank you very much, Adam. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Um, and I've enjoyed actually uh, being here for the day for, for the um, prior panels as well. So what I want to do, actually, whoops, that went automatic. Um, what I want to do is um, actually try to raise a few themes. And I have um, I have way too many slides, but I but they're snazzier slides than I usually have. So I want to whoops, but they're <laughs> but someone's making them go. Why is that happening? Really? Who's controlling this? Is it playing your slideshow, probably? I don't know. Could, I didn't do anything. Someone else set it up. Is it still, is it still on? I prefer it not to play automatically. But, um, uh, has it stopped? Is this in the right place? Yeah, we got a sneak preview, and now maybe you're all set. All right. <laughs> so can my time start? I, I know we, you have Can my time start again? But <laughs> <laughs> I want to start. So can we start my time now? Yes, okay. but you have to great. do a full round of thank yous again okay. as well. <laughs> so it's great to be here. Um, I'm going to start, actually, just at the outset. I want to tell you what my bottom line is. So I have a few thematic uh, points that I want to make. Adam started the day by saying one of the themes would be thinking about how technological innovation will affect or change the regulator. So I want to talk about that because I actually think this is um, these are issues arising out of the ACA study, not part of that um, uh, ACA study um, itself. But I think, um, as my talk suggests, uh, I'm going to hone in on the FDA as a window into the future of AI in the administrative state. And my, uh, my, my thesis, one thesis would be that this technological innovation, particularly the technological innovation of machine learning AI in the healthcare sector, um, a domain that the FDA is involved in regulating, is going to transform the paradigm of the FDA. And to cut to the chase, my argument's going to be it's going to transform it from a very much uh, ex-ante pre-market regulator to much more of an ex-post-market surveillance type of regulator. I think that's intriguing and interesting to think about at the outset. So I think that's um, at the like highest level of abstraction. 
at a lower level, I think that there is a real need, and this is consistent with what David talked about in terms of taking an administrative law kind of framing of some of these technological innovations. So what I'm thinking about is as some of these tools are being developed, that it would be worthwhile to think about kind of in the specter of let's say these tools being used in the rulemaking context, how they should be developed with the specter of judicial review. Adam, you mentioned the podcast, I just learned about it, Arbitrary and Capricious, that's yeah. nice, because I'm thinking about State Farm Arbitrary and Capricious Review and reasons giving and what that would mean in a context of machine learning, artificial intelligence. And so I think it's a real opportunity for uh, administrative law types to really think hard as this technology is emerging to talk to some of the technical people who are involved within agencies, et cetera, in terms of how these tools should be developed and what it means, for example, to have explainable AI, what in particular will judges look for in terms of this uh, reasons giving. Second point that I'm hopefully gonna show you a little bit today is we had this panel on regulatory sandboxes, which was an intriguing uh, panel. And I think that there are ways in which some agencies, and it sounds, Melissa, a little bit like maybe some of this policy lab within CFTC, is that agencies can have these kind of internal you know, regulatory sandboxes. They wouldn't meet all the definitions uh, that we heard before about what the purpose was, but they might be a kind of experimental way. And I'm gonna give you an example where I think the FDA, which has this kind of internal incubator of some of these technologies in a group now advanced that's um, headed up by this gentleman on the right here, Sean Cozen, called Informed. Informed is the Information Exchange and Data Transformation. It's a data science uh, incubator focused on oncology and innovations there. Uh oh, there we go. Someone's now taking control. We'll go back. Uh, but I think that there can be ways in which the purpose of something like this internal regulatory sandbox is actually to de-risk some of these technologies, right? And the idea would be if an agency has the sophistication and to relate back actually was why I was most intrigued, uh, Kate Lauer, in your talk, I actually took the gist of what you were saying to say that there is this kind of dialogue between the regulators and the regulated entities. And while we might have some worries about things like regulatory capture, there might be ways in which the kind of sophistication of the regulator can, um, can actually help with respect to specifying how certain types of uh, technologies that have risks should be uh, regulated. Third and final overarching point is I'd like us to step back and just think, you know, in a world of health and safety risks, I teach both tort and administrative law. And I like to think about the common law being a regulator, regulators being a regulator, self-regulation. And this goes all the way back to our first panel about the consumer, about section uh, 230 of the CDA and what the common law perspective might be, et cetera. I think we have an interesting terrain here where we can try to think about what's the kind of optimal regulatory uh, framework. So that's kind of, those are my ambitions. And in a uh, few minutes, here's what I'm gonna try to do. The first is on the left-hand side here, I'm not sure if you can read that, but there's a forthcoming article by Deirdre Mulligan and Ken, Ken Bamberger. It's called Procurement as Policy, Administrative Process for Machine Learning. And it's a great article, but I wanna kind of use it as a foil or an entry point to show why a study like the ACUS study that I'm a part of is so important. So they make uh, the claim that agencies most often lack the technical expertise to design or assess algorithmic systems on their own, and also that design decisions are left to private third-party developers, where there's no public participation, no reason deliberation, no factual record. Uh, we have uh, Sean Cozen over here talking about this gap 
between the regulator and the uh, private sector. We heard earlier Kat uh, Mahler from Uber said that as a normative matter, actually, we want the governmental regulator to be behind industry and innovation. I'm not too sure that I would agree with that as a normative proposition, as an empirical reality. We have to think about if that's the case. And then this comes in, Melissa, you were talking about capacity building within an agency, what they could do over lunch. We heard about the ability to attract sophisticated data scientists to work on that abacus uh, type experiment. And I think those are the, to me, most intriguing questions about the juncture where we are today with respect to the uh, use of machine learning and artificial intelligence in the administrative state. So all I really want to do, and this is going to, is, um, oh, there's one other just point of uh, departure. Last week, there was an op-ed in the New York Times. Artificial intelligence is too important to leave to Google and Facebook alone. And these particular author, authors, uh-oh, there it goes, uh, have a sort of public option that they want to focus on. My point here is just to look at the third pillar of their program is that the federal government should uh, think about AI across all sectors, not just military and national security. So the ACUS, this is all sort of a subtle, but now I'll make it explicit plug for our ACUS study, because what our ACUS study is doing is canvassing the use of machine learning and AI across all of these domains. In fact, we've excluded the national security. Oh, contact. Someone is taking this over. Um, okay, so that's kind of the, the usefulness of the, of the project. Um, I want to talk, as I said, about the, a few insights um, from, the, uh, from looking at uh, some features of the FDA. So the first thing, and Melissa, you hit on this as well, is I think it's important some uh, agencies, whoa, some agencies both regulate AI in the real world and use AI internally. Some, some agencies do both of those things, some just do one or the other. The FDA is interesting to me because, of course, it regulates and it's already approved. Here's some fancy pictures of, um, of medical devices that incorporate machine learning AI that the FDA has approved. And Melissa, this is consistent with something I heard you say, which is if an agency is going to be able to do that effectively, they have to build internal capacity. They have to understand this technology. And once they do, like it would be passingly strange if they didn't start using these technologies internally in all sorts of the ways that uh, David was talking about might be good uh, uses. So um, in addition to regulating these things, they, the FDA has various guidance. It sounds like CFTC does as well, where they're doing workshops, they publish documents, um, et cetera, kind of giving guidance out into the, into the world. I'm going to skip ahead because this is um, uh, a little bit about the informed program that I mentioned. So again, what is interesting is that this is like a little incubator within the FDA that's harnessing data to improve cancer diagnostics. And it raises all sorts of these interesting issues about how generalizable this might be in terms of other agencies, whether it might be a, um, a good uh, kind of um, model to follow. So I'm, uh, whoops, there we go. Uh, so what the future holds, what I think is really important to think about is first how agencies are going to build the technical capacity. Second, I talked big picture about how I think we need to think in some of these agencies if there's a shifting regulatory paradigm. And I'll come back uh, very quickly to tell you why I think this is happening at the FDA. And then finally, the kind of idea of a development of an administrative law framework, but, but not waiting until that framework is developed to start thinking about these issues. This is back to that point about how explainability of AI would translate into reasons giving. So um, briefly on this informed, and I've heard Sean Cozen speak about this, 
in this fashion, call it a kind of regulatory sandbox. The idea is uh, it's difficult for an agency like the FDA to think about how you can experiment with this technology, but fail cheaply. And I think it's important for it to do so, right? You don't want to kind of like experiment out on the population in a way that has dramatic potential, you know, high risk costs, maybe even low probabilities, but of high risk events, et cetera, et cetera. So it gives you the opportunity to think about ways in which you might be able to um, fail cheaply. The second important point, when I step back, this is less, um, Cozen doesn't speak about it this way, but when I started to think about why does the FDA have this internal incubator, I think it is serving this purpose of de-risking the, techno the technology. So showing those in the industry, which types of machine learning techniques, et cetera, will likely be, uh, be compatible with the FDA's, sorry, regulatory framework. Okay, couple more points about uh, building technical capacity. I think we can talk about some of these in the Q&A. There are ways to think about building it internally versus externally. There are various ways to think about partnerships, partnerships between uh, the private and the public sector. Importantly, what we've discovered in the ACUS study is a lot of uh, fruitful partnerships between agencies and academia um, that might actually help kind of bridge the technological gap. And then the idea of hosting these competitions and that being a way, um, it sounded actually, Melissa, that you briefly were, were talking about that as one exemplar. Okay. Uh, data capacity. All right. Um, let me say, what do I have? Do I still have two minutes? Okay. Um, let's come, let, let's go to the shifting regulatory paradigms, just to give you one slide on what I mean by that. Now, don't focus on the snazzy thing in the middle, which is kind of quite complicated. Just focus on what I say on the left and the right. So what I'm arguing is I think we're seeing, uh, and we will, so this is more a predictive. I'm, I'm being like machine learning and I'm making a prediction. So we're seeing as a predictive uh, uh, measure, we're gonna see a movement from the FDA focusing almost all of its resources on ex-ante pre-market clearance of things that where it's serving this gatekeeping function, it's largely federalized, there's large swaths of preemption to an ex-post market surveillance with potentially lowered barrier to market for things like digital health apps and the like. Whoops, this is getting out of hand. Um, increased industry government cooperation, more room potentially for state, and here I mean like common law possibly um, entering into there. And why do I say that? Well, the FDA seems to be experimenting with all sorts of new building up um, pipelines of data, particularly data, which is fueling machine learning and AI. And most of those new fuels or pipelines have to do with real world data. So they're very, very interested in that. And that's going to lead, I think, to a kind of a focused shifting in terms of um, once things are out on the market, how they can, on an ongoing basis, um, be regulating. Uh, only thing I'll say about this administrative law framework, we've talked a bit about reasons giving. I think there's an interesting thing to think about this idea of the human in the loop. When do you still need a human in the loop? When not? I think there's some difficult questions that might be domain specific. There are all sorts of types of decision making that we might be comfortable with going fully automated. And there's others where we'd want the AI or machine learning to just do the shrinking of the proverbial haystack and then have humans be looking at that kind um, of evidence. But um, we will, uh, I'm going to leave things there. And as I said, I think the main point that I want to leave you with is as we um, put forward this report that I think will be very exciting about 
um, seeing how this kind of technology is actually in use in federal agencies today, now is the time to start getting academics, policy uh, folks, technical people, and legal people thinking about these bigger picture questions as the technology is being shaped uh, you know, right now, as opposed to waiting uh, too long down the road to then figure out what we should have been doing as we were developing these tools. Thank Great. you. Thanks, Kathy. As I, as I watched you sort of fight with the, with the, the time, I realized the future of, of programs like these will just, you'll nudge speakers to stay on time by just advancing their slides. They'll make moderators um, obsolete. Um, since this is a law school, let me just start with a, a, a law question for the law professors. Um, David, in your slide, you, you talked about prioritizing enforcement through the use of an algorithm. I'm just, it sort of occurred to me, when an agency uses an algorithm to set sort of a, 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 a rule for prioritizing it, um, enforcement, enforcement discretion, is that a rule? Or does it have to go through notice and comment? Because it's not really case-by-case -case judgment. It's not the usual stuff of Heckler. It is of a fixed objective standard um, guiding the use of discretion. That sounds a lot like the kind of thing that has to go through notice and comment. What do you think? Well, it's something I raised in my presentation. It's a possibility. It's certainly not uh, it's not a necessary doctrinal result under 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 current doctrine. Well, have the so the, into this at all yet? They have not. Yeah. So the closest they've come is they have in, in certain cases declared a statistical model, for instance, in use by the EPA to be a rule that would need to go through notice and comment. But there is no case law yet on algorithms. Yeah. Uh, for the non-administrative lawyers in the room, the question of whether something is a legislative rule is a really important one under the Administrative Procedure Act. This is the big trans-substantive procedural law that governs uh, the work of administrative agencies and under the APA, if something is declared a legislative rule, it must be pushed through that no notice and comment process. And so uh, just to back up uh, again, that, that notice and comment process is the way that we subject agency rules to some measure of political ventilation. Yeah. And so the doctrine says uh, that, well, the doctrine is a mess, uh, but... Um, it's great for exams. It's good for exams, that's true, but um, just in, in really general terms, the, the, the real question is whether, a, uh, is often whether a, a particular tool in use, and it could be a guidance document, is, 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 has a binding effect on agency personnel. That's, again, I'm doing all kinds of injury to some of the details of the doctrine. But you, you can imagine if, if you have a, a, an enforcement algorithm, one of these algorithmic enforcement tools that um, provides a, a risk score to a, a set of line level enforcers who are making enforcement decisions, that might not be binding. In fact, at the SEC right now, uh, the tools are entirely voluntary at the level of the line level enforcer. So you have you know, a central office of technologists who are developing these these scores and or these these tools, and they're and they're glad to send these risk scores to the line level prosecutors. Many do use them, but they don't have to. It's unlikely that that would be a legislative rule that would need to go through that onerous notice and comment process. Um, but uh, a tool that is seen as um, well, that's more mandatory in terms of its use within the agency or a tool that as an empirical matter seems to be driving those line-level enforcement decisions could very easily be deemed to be a legislative rule by a court and that would push it into this notice and comment process. Last thing I'll say about that, this, and I, and I talked about it. Remember I talked about how 
um, you know, what we need is actionable transparency. The question is, okay, so suppose we do push some of these tools into the notice and comment process. So what, what does that accomplish? Does that actually accomplish something we could call meaningful accountability? Maybe, maybe it absolutely does. Maybe it means that the interest group community can put eyeballs on it and in particular put technologists on it and really understand the rule. Um, but maybe not. Uh, if it's not a you know sophisticated part of the economy, maybe you don't actually get the kind of scrutiny you want. Uh, and worse, maybe you don't want scrutiny with respect to an enforcement tool, um, precisely because, as I noted, it actually kills the usefulness of the tool. Right, that's the gamesmanship side of things. Yeah, yeah. So you know, there's a, there's a general concern around these algorithmic governance tools of all sorts. This both this spans enforcement and adjudication. This concern about gaming and what would be referred to in the machine learning community as adversarial learning. And so there's all sorts of concerns about the ability of the regulated community or beneficiaries or what have you being able to reverse engineer a tool. Um, and, uh, and and therefore take action that actually foils the efforts of the of the agency. Yeah, I would just say I, I um, agree on the first point. I think it's um it's a very interesting thing about the line between something being used as a as a um, decision tool or aid or making the decision. And with Mich I think that line is going to be particularly difficult. Uh, for the reasons that David suggested too, that you might there might be a reason. Like I've been astounded by the numbers of. Um, uh, panels and even thinking there's some um, sophisticated stuff going on in Canada with respect to use of decision, uh, sorry, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning and consumer facing type things. And everyone touts the human in the loop, sometimes for normatively good reasons. And sometimes I think just to say that means it could never possibly be making decisions. And I, you know, I think courts will have to come up with metrics, whether it's a disparate impact or what it is to figure out that line drawing. And then just quickly, the second, uh, uh, the second point on, um, well, no, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it. Yeah, not to get obscure, but every time you, you mention the human in the loop, it reminds me of uh, the Descartes, the ghost in the machine. Um, Anyway, uh, David, I jumped into that first question without giving you a chance to even respond to it, folks. Did you have any comments you wanted to make uh, <coughs> reacting to the reactions to? No, well, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, that, let's, that let's move on. Let's yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in having. Well, I don't want to hear myself talk anymore. Well, uh, well let me hear myself talk for just a second. <laughs> um, I do have just two more questions. One is, as AI makes enforcement much more efficient, um, streamlines a lot of things, takes the friction out of a lot of just the day-to-day -day work of enforcement. Should we expect any kind of push to change the underlying legal standards that they're enforcing? I mean, if modern administration presumes a little bit of friction in the process, it presumes that not all standards will be enforced to the furthest possible extent. Well, if there are huge efficiency gains on the enforcement side, should we expect or should, should we call for any sort of recalibration of the underlying standards? And it seems to me that if there is just a, a, a watershed change in the way we go about enforcing regulations, it's surely going to affect the people's perception of what's actually being enforced. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I would make it even broader. So if we have much more sort of ex post public enforcement, we might think about the balance between how much private ex post tort law enforcement we would need, and that might that might center back into this as well. The, to be a little more concrete in this area, the sort of third uh, um, big picture idea I wanted us to think about, about the spectrum from tort regulation and then 
um, self-regulation. As I didn't mention, there's also this, these standard-setting bodies. So NIST is involved in standard-setting right now on the use of AI, and they are emphatic that they are not a regulatory body. They're setting standards. Well, given that I teach torts and regulation and standards, like, I, I don't understand, you know, that's another form of regulation, and all of them should be seen kind of simultaneously if we step back and say, what's the optimal level of, of quote-unquote, regulation do we need given certain level of risks in society. So yes, I think there, there probably would be some recalibration, but I'm not, you know, prescient enough. I can only do so much prediction of the future to say exactly how it would re recalibrate the balance. I mean, the sort of ham-fisted analogy would be in the last five years, there's been such a change in the use of instant replay in sports. And that's forced, you know, the NFL, the NBA to go back and rethink of how, what are the rules we're actually enforcing mm -hmm. here? That's what got me thinking about it. Well, so has there, yeah. a, from your perspective inside of the CFTC, the more that you've turned to technology in, in sort of in facilitating the work of the CFTC, has it led the commission to go back and rethink at all the standards that are being enforced? Yeah, and I should I should have prefaced this. Um, I'm one month I'm one month into this job, and so I didn't start with saying you know my views are that what I say are my views and not those of the commission. So I'm I'm learning. Um, but. Uh, you know, getting back to that, but also what Kathy talked about, I mean, that's that's the whole point. Shouldn't we be looking at what the law and the regulations say and adjusting in light of changes in the market or innovations or whatnot? I don't, I, one of the reasons and the whole point of Lab CFTC, right, is to do that, to see what are the trends that are happening? What are the things that are uh, changing that we should start saying, okay, because of this, this regulatory box doesn't look the way it should be looking anymore. Maybe we need to adjust it. And I think that that's, you know, I know it's a blanket statement, but I, I think you can hold that true for anything when it comes to uh, the fact that technology moves so much faster than regulation and it adapts so much faster. I would also say, you know, I think we have to be careful and mindful about boxing in or thinking about regulating AI, for example, right? Or or the uses of AI, because I think today this is the the hot ticket, right? I think ten years from now this will be more of the norm, right? And uh, and then the new and latest technology and innovation will be down there, and we'll be having this discussion about how should we change the rules again, right? Um, it's the importance of principles-based regulation, which is something that both the chairman and, and Lab CFTC are very focused on, which is, okay, uh, you know, the regulatory structure, the, the what's in place has to uh, continue for generations and generations, and the challenges of passing new legislation or regulation are, are out there in terms of the quickness of that. So how do you adjust in terms with new innovations coming down the pike? How can you continue that. And that's that's the purpose of principle-based regulation. Well, I have some other questions we could return to, but let's go to the audience. I know there's a lot of people here who thought a lot about these issues. As always, there's a couple of microphones. Uh, we'll start here in the back with Adam. Hi, thanks. Great panel. Um, my question is primarily for Catherine, but uh, anybody's welcome to answer. So Catherine, in your presentation, you had a great slide uh, about uh, the sort of move to ex-post enforcement mechanisms for the FDA and um, why that might be happening. But it, it seems like that's already the reality on the ground for a great number of emerging technologies, uh, especially advanced medical technologies that the FDA has been approving. In a, in a recent paper, Jennifer Huddleston and I will be presenting here in a moment, she, uh, she and I and another colleague, we uh, documented just how many of these sort of soft law practices 
are underway at a whole variety of regulatory agencies, but really it's the FDA that's leading this. Mm -hmm. And there's always been guidances and various informal processes and soft law-esque kind of approaches. But it seems like for most emerging technology, the FDA is effectively done with the old playbook. And the new playbook is a much more adaptive, flexible one. And it's one that opens up a number of interesting challenges and legal questions. We're here at this event with the Center for the Study of Administrative State. And, you know, the old administrative law stickler me would say, this all stinks. This is terrible. You know, we need accountability, transparency. We need to go by the book. We've got the Administrative Procedures Act. We've got all these things. But the innovation technology lever me says, this is great. This is the entrepreneurial governance and reinventing government things that we've always called for and wanted, you know? So the question is, how do you guide the guidances? How do you, how do you, you know, put some principles in place to guide to make sure the worst things don't happen? Melissa had an, uh, um, uh, a moment ago, she said, like, the technology is moving faster than the law. When in my next book, I basically answer my own question. I'm, I'm asking you by saying, well, it's the pacing problem that's the check. It's the fact that technology does continuously now move faster than law that keeps the regulators on their toes and will stop them from abusing power. So what do you say to that thesis? Yeah, so, um, so great. So it, it encourages me. So maybe the long story short is like, because I wasn't aware of your paper, I had to go through sort of this year-long study and then look and see what the FDA is doing and come to what it sounds like is the right conclusion. I don't think the general public is aware of that. And I don't think the academy is aware of that, actually. Everyone, I mean, it is true that the model of the FDA is not only, I mean, just to step back, as you know, you know, when we think about products liability in the U.S., we have, compared to other countries, the least amount of ex-ante regulation and the most ex-post toward, except when it comes to the FDA. We have the most stringent ex-ante regulator, far more than the European equivalent, et cetera, et cetera. We also happen to have a lot of tort litigation for medical devices, et cetera. So it's not like it's hydraulic. But I think that the model, sort of the paradigm of the FDA is as the most stringent ex-ante regulator. And so I completely agree with you. And I think the FDA is the most fascinating of the agencies in some sense to think about machine learning and AI because the healthcare industry is already way ahead with respect to machines mediating all sorts of relationships between patients and doctors, et cetera. And the FDA, without a huge amount of fanfare, again, people I know who sort of study the agency weren't aware that they'd approved medical devices that use machine learning, AI, and what's the de novo pathway that it went through and all these very interesting things. So I, agree, I don't think this is sort of like, I'm the only, you know, I think anyone who looked at this really, really carefully, and it sounds like you were able to do that, would see this transformation going on. But I think it's worth writing an article about, it's worth thinking through. And then, as you said, it's worth thinking about what does this mean about our view of administrative law, et cetera. Now, I, I might disagree. I don't know the answer to the right way, but I'll give you one example. Another area that I've written about and I'm now writing another article about is the way the FDA regulates direct-to-consumer genetic testing. And what's really interesting there is there's a huge blurred distinction between what's a medical device or not, what if something is just ordered by a doctor, would the FDA step away from, et cetera. And my own view there is that given the risks that are posed by that kind of technology, which isn't even machine learning, et cetera, the FDA should keep its regulatory hand in. Now, what they've done by clearing 23andMe is not impose the same 
you know, pre-market approval thing, but they're taking a risk-based approach that I think makes sense. So again, here, with respect to, let's say, machines that they're approving, you know, medical devices that incorporate machine learning, I think it's a really difficult question how they should do what, what David was calling the benchmarking. Like, you can look at these things and you can look at the false positive, false negative, you know, ratings, but I don't think their benchmarking to human decision-making is going to work over time. Like, we should expect these machines to way outperform humans. And so, you know, some of the image rec recognition technology, some of the things that the FDA is dealing with, I think what's going to be difficult is figuring out what is that baseline of safety. And I'm happier to have the FDA have a hand in that. I think there are some problems in terms of making sure they have the right kind of sophistication internally to be able to do that. The final point I'll just say is that I think the FDA might be a little bit unique, probably similar to sort of financial services, maybe, but the FDA, again, I think people in the industry who are very uncertain about what the FDA, still in this new, brave new world of ex post uh, lower barriers to getting things, they're still very reticent to use certain technologies unless they think the FDA is kind of on board with them. And again, that's what I was talking about with the incubator that I think is being using this kind of de-risking model. I think that's a pretty good model, actually, to signal to the community. And it's a very different way than ex-ante clinical trials going through to figure out what, what works or doesn't. Uh Next year, and then. Thank you. Um, Kathy, I was interested to hear that you um, felt that standards um, were part of regulation. So in financial services, I mean, there are many standards that I think financial institutions follow voluntarily, but they don't have to, and especially in the, in the global uh, picture, you wouldn't necessarily want to apply the standards in each case. So I'm just wondering, is that established? I mean, the view? Because I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, I think I meant it. So I, um, uh, I think that inevitably, uh, standards are a sort of form of soft regulation, the same way that we might talk about self-regulation and what happens in certain types of environments where self-regulation and or standards leads to um, a situation where, for example, uh, it would become um, an industry-wide standard. It would become informative as to not only what's reasonable care under, say, a tort standard or what a regulator would look to. So here, the reason why I think with something like machine learning AI that it has more a higher propensity to serve that role is that I think there's, um, you know, there is uh, a lot of uncertainty at the moment as to what those uh, technical standards should be. And so if an institution like NIST is able to uh, produce something, either domain-specific or the like, I think it would become highly influential. So uh, yeah, you're, you're right. But I think in a way to sort of act like they're totally separate, the same way some people act like tort law and regulation are totally separate. One like compensates for in injuries and one regulates. And, you know, we've lived in, I, you know, there's a whole historical arc where an agency like the FDA used to come in to litigation and say, oh, what we do is totally different when we approve labeling of drugs from tort law. And then there are other periods of time where they say, no, 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 tort law should be preempted. And my view is, you know, tort law has a regulatory guise. And standards 
have a softer regulatory guise. You can sort of see the effect as it works through the system. That's the that's the more nuanced response. You're right. Right uh, here, and then the next will be a link. To Mr. Freeman, a question is uh, for the initial claim, the systems already have a good rating of response. So why not? What are the issues that you see? They are only regulatory or will be technical to try to implement this kind of uh, system to to process VA claims that still have a huge backlog. And if you put everything in a in a in a processing data processing system, it will be much more faster to have at least the the first initial one. So what would be, if any, problem to do this tryout and to leave only to human touch to review the claims? You know, on the, on the VA issue, we had not just uh, Daniel Ho, but another man you mentioned, uh, Gerald Ray from the Social Security Administration, who'd done so much, I guess, in consultation with the VA, right, on using mm -hmm. algorithms to streamline the process there. I think I missed the tail end of the question. I'm, I'm so sorry, but can I have you, can I ask you to, re, to restate the, just, just the end? I didn't, I didn't quite understand the, 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 the question because it seemed to be you're asking about whether we shouldn't just fully automate these things. But, and, and if that's the question, that's fine. I can, I can talk about that, but I want to make sure I'm being responsive. Yeah, it's to fully automate this is the, the initial claims to the, the processing of the initial claim, to leave only for the human touch the appellate part, if is any, or make even automatic appellate part to see if the decisions being done by the machine is right, uh -huh. and exactly to stream to speed up this because we still have a, a huge backlog, and if is to give some rights, it's better to give, and even if the way to to remove later is okay, but to give the rights at once for veterans, if is the case, and especially to what are the the strength strains that you see today is just legal restraints or, or, or political restraints or there will be any technical restraint to do this only mm -hmm. so leaving the great. human touch for the appellate level great so um so i think the the main problem right now is technical constraints so nlp natural language processing this is as i described earlier it's the branch of machine learning that, that analyzes text has made enormous leaps uh, recently. And when I say recently, I mean like the last 18 months, there have been um, incredible leaps forward in that technology. Um, but NLP cannot yet extract and trade in legal argument in any kind of sophisticated way. And so that puts a clear ceiling on the use of these tools in terms of automating decision making. So what do we see in these mass adjudicatory agencies? What do we see as the best uses? You can think of them as triage uses for the moment. Um, so it's the, the tool I described that clusters together cases and allows an AJ to concentrate on a particular type of case for a week. You can even imagine rotating AJs around particular types of cases, a rotational system rather than sort of within their dockets, allowing them to, to cluster. And that supposedly, you know, could have a, a nice effect in terms of the, you know, the equity of the, of the system, treating like cases alike, and also the, the speed with which AJs can proceed through them. Another tool that I didn't mention that's in use at SSA is a tool that helps to identify easy grants. These would be cases in which the SSA is almost certain to grant disability benefits at the end uh, of the process. And what this allows the agency to do then is to push those cases to staff level decision makers. And that frees up AJs to, to do, you know, to focus on the, the, the more difficult um, cases. So I think it's a technical limit. We'll be, what will be interesting to see as this plays out, so think next five, seven years, especially if NLP 
continues to advance as quickly as it has recently. A really interesting question will be as those, some of those technical constraints fall away, whether there will be a set of kind of human uh, political anxieties that then, um, you know, come in and, and, and produce a, a, a similar ceiling on the, on the technology. And I don't know how that will come out exactly. I think a lot of the anxiety in the current moment about robo judges is a skepticism about the, you know, the quality of the tools, the accuracy of the tools. But, but once there is some proven accuracy there, and once you can, through a benchmarking process, show that, you know, for these for adjudications within a very self-contained technocratic area of law, machine actually, um, you know, in a keystroke can get to a, to a more accurate answer than a human decision maker. I could imagine that so long as we're only talking about robo-judges within one of these self-contained technocratic areas of law, I could imagine that those anxieties wouldn't have the same traction that they have right now and that you could move towards something like, um, to something like full automation. You know, this, this last point, this is one of the questions I was going to raise, actually, is, is, yeah, there's great efficiency gains and a lot of individual cases that would be a backlog will someday be heard because of these technological uh, advancements. At the same time, there is something that's lost, right, in terms of just personal dignity. When the person who was going to appear before some sort of administrative judge and look that judge, you know, eye to eye and, and appear in person, um, no longer has that same sort of interaction with the government. Um, it's anxiety. Um, I actually do wonder how this is going to play out if we get to the, the uh, a future of, of, as you said, robo-judges, and that people will sort of demand that dignity, uh, that interpersonal reaction, even if it doesn't really change their case in the end, and even if it makes the process as a whole more unwieldy, creates a backlog, there is, you called it transparency earlier, and I think that's right, but it's something a little bit more than that, too. Mm -hmm. Just wondering how this will play out. Yeah, and I think, I think the robo-judging question, the, po the prospect that, 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 um, you know, that, that we could have fully automated, machine-driven decision-making uh, really presses us on our, on our fundamental conception of law. So if you, you, know, if you, if you take a, a, a view of the law, the, the namesake of this law school, that, that rule of law is a law of rules, then maybe a, a machine that can um, you know, relentlessly <laughs> apply rules and get to accurate decisions that treat like cases exactly alike, then you know, maybe we are actually quite fine with that. Um, uh, but if, if we think that law has more of a human element to it, or we think that uh, one reason we have human judges is because we like to have equities applied in particular situations, and indeed that that's the best way to get to horizontal equity is this more kind of subtle social norm informed, um, you know, weighing of, of intangibles within a case, then, you know, we, I think we would, we would continue to have those anxieties about robo-judging. I'll just say one more thing about this, which is I think judges by professional disposition are very much against these rules. I'm doing a separate line of work thinking about yeah. le legal tech, which is the use of these tools within the litigation system, because uh, um, you have a lot of machine learning tools that started out in the e-discovery context, but they're quickly moving out to other types of tasks, performing legal analytics, doing outcome prediction that can facilitate form shopping. Um, and judges know that these tools are being used and that these tools are telling litigants what precise argument to lay before <laughs> that judge. 
And so judges are aware of this. And I think by professional predisposition, you can imagine they don't, they don't like them at all. And yet I can't, I can't resist the temptation. If it's true, as Chief Justice Roberts said during his confirmation proceedings, that judges are just umpires, then why should they care? Because if they're just judging balls and strikes and the machine can perfectly judge balls and strikes, think back to the World Series. We all watched the games where there was a nice little square over the plate that allowed us to perfectly <laughs> determine and indeed and, and, and second guess uh, uh, the, you know, the, the, the determination of the umpire as to whether that was a ball, ball or a strike. So here, right, in the previous panel, like we had someone present a paper and then everyone on the panel ganged up on, you know, on him. So here I have to gang up in some sense, in the sense that like a common law. So this is where I think it's actually helpful to teach both administrative law and common law of tort. So that kind of perspective on an evolutionary common law development of the law would be quite um, frightening because the whole idea is sort of machine learning uh, is very, very good about harnessing past data to make predictions and so sort of past it. And so if you have like a clear set of rules and that's what you're doing, but if you have any notion that in any body or any area that you want to kind of like evolutionary common law development, think you're going to need some mechanism along the lines of what we heard about before where sort of there'd at least be some mechanism where um, policy-based changes could get then injected back into the system or something. So I think there's a reason why it would be less objectionable in something that was like a you know, a licensing type thing or a sort of rote, uh, what we're supposed to be deciding on, even controversial areas. I actually did a study when I was a senior in college that was looking at the bail uh, system, the public versus private. And what was great is the bail commissioner where I was living gave me all of the data and they had these sheets that gave a score for each of the factors that were supposed to be risk of flight, et cetera. So I ran lo logistical regressions and could say, you say you're making the decision based on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, but there's all this unexplained variation. So a decision where we're willing to say we make it based on this, this, and this, this technology would be great for, but not for other areas of the law. I, so can I, can, I, can I respond just really, really <laughs> briefly? So I think a te the technologist response to that would be, rightly or wrongly, that the kind of updating you want in a kind of a common law evolutionary model of the law is, is a technical problem. And and it can be resolved over time. I think that's I think that's so so and and the detractors will will make the point on the other side. It's a point I already made, which is that um, you know the application of machine learning, whether within a mass adjudicatory system or the administrative state or the legal system more generally, it erodes the system's dialogic and moral core because we don't we don't feel like there's a human element to it anymore, and we don't feel like there's the deliberation that can properly. Um, ensure that legal norms are evolving in ways that are consistent with various normative commitments. And again, the technologist says that's a that's a technical problem. You know, like 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 um, you know, divining evolving social norms is something that a machine learning tool with enough data and enough sophistication can solve. Now, I don't I don't necessarily believe it, um, and time will tell. But I think but I think that's the response. Um, well, I, I do want to say I do want to say on this issue uh, on this issue if you're interested in these on how technology will affect the way we look at law itself, be sure to stick around for the next panel with Rob Weber and Jennifer Huddleston. That infomercial out of the way, I want to at least get to to Elaine's question. I'm sorry, Peter, we're not going to have time to get to yours. Okay, I think my question is related to what you all were just talking about. So when you were a professor. At almost the exact millisecond that you were using the word algorithm, 
I saw this on my phone from the New York Times. It says, the headline, are algorithms sexist? So I, it, if I, and there's referring, I have not read the article, but about the Apple card. So if you can just generalize to that, are you saying that people need to understand algorithms? I don't think they're going to be able to. So won't that just reinforce the feeling that the system isn't fair? Well, so I think I think the, the concerns about bias are, are animating a lot of the, the legal and policy debate right now. You know, in the, in the Federalist, James Madison worries that one of the threats to the rule of law in Republican government is just people being governed by a, a blizzard of rules that change and change over time, and the people themselves can't really understand the content of the mm -hmm. rules. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's maybe the fear here. I think this goes to one of the points I made in my, in my canned presentation about actionable transparency. And so we could devise lots of regulatory schemes uh, that we hope will achieve a measure of accountability, whether it's private sector use of AI or, or public sector use of AI, and we can try to arm people with all sorts of information about um, you know, how, these how these algorithmic systems are producing results that, that matter for people's lives. You can imagine um, a system like the Fair Credit Reporting Act where, um, you know, where an, an individual is entitled to uh, some kind of notion of what the inputs into the system were, and even a weighting of those inputs. Um, but as I noted in my in my presentation, there's this concern about actionable transparency. Like arming people with that information doesn't isn't the same thing as achieving accountability for these systems. And so that's why I think over the next five or ten years, uh, courts, you know, judges, lawyers, administrators. Uh, agency administrators, uh, legislators, they're going to have to think hard about these questions and they're going to have to think hard about them at a bunch of different levels of abstraction. So, you know, some of my remarks today were down in the mean streets of administrative law. You're going to have to think about what reviewability doctrine is going to look like. Um, but we also have to ask, you know, lots of questions at, at, at sort of, you know, higher levels of abstraction about, you know, what we, what we mean by transparency and how we can actually um, achieve something that we can, you know, by some hopeful, some, some hopeful consensus that, that we can consider a, a measure of accountability for these decisions that, that are going to have a really important effect on people's lives um, and yet may have, suffer from bias, arbitrariness that people can see or think they can see, um, but feel um, completely powerless to change. Well, I'd encourage you all to look up uh, David and Daniel's paper on the website and keep an eye out for the report that will appear at acus.gov. Um, we're going to take a 10-minute break. We'll reconvene at 54, uh, but please join me in thanking our speakers.